0: We give you the chance to hear many different people who are facing many different struggles talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening is a crucial step in strengthening all of our efforts to change the world. On this week's show, I'll be speaking with Derek Blackadder. In the context of the COVID-19 pandemic, social movements of every stripe are scrambling to figure out how to organize, mobilize, and act, when so many of our usual ways of doing things are, for the moment, not an option. As in many other spheres of life, one key response by movements is taking up a range of online tools and using them more frequently and in new ways. Movements have been debating how best to make use of online tools for a long, long time, and today's episode looks back at that journey in one movement, from the pre-internet days of the 1980s right up to today's urgent pandemic-inspired shifts. Over Derek Blackadder's decades as a union staffer, more than 25 years with the Canadian Union of Public Employees, or CUPE, and for shorter periods with other unions, he was centrally involved in shaping the ways in which the unions that he was part of and the broader labour movement engaged with information technology. As well, for 20 years he's been a volunteer with Labour Start, an international project that is a source of labour news from around the world and that does regular online campaigns in support of workers' rights. And he's the web work columnist for Our Times Magazine, an independent Canadian labor magazine focused on workers' rights and social justice. At some point in the mid or late 1980s, Blackadder was invited to an LGBTQ conference in Toronto where activists were talking about using dial-up modems and text-based bulletin board systems as a way to connect with, support, and organize with queer youth in isolated parts of the country. This, it seemed to Blackadder, could be adapted to labor purposes. He convinced his union to set up a bulletin board system, which was then used by locals and even individual members in different parts of the country to connect, to share information, and to coordinate with unprecedented ease. Even more, he said, it allowed for the development of a sense of community and of being in concrete relationship with other workers beyond just your own committee or local. The technology and the uses to which unions have put it have, of course, evolved a great deal over the decades. From bulletin boards to their own intranets, From custom-built websites on a newly accessible internet, to social media and smartphones, from basic information sharing to large-scale coordinated campaigns, it has been a constant process of adaptation and change. Certainly not all of the changes have been for the better, but each stage has offered new opportunities to the labor movement. Blackadder says that figuring out ways to use technology in movements requires a willingness to experiment and to get it wrong. Looking back over as many years of writing on this topic, he can identify all sorts of incorrect predictions, misdirected enthusiasms, and now embarrassing positions. And in pushing tech forward in practical ways within unions, he and the rest of the small network of folks dedicated to doing so had to try a lot of different things to find the ones that worked. Though he sees great risks in our growing dependence on platforms controlled by giant corporations, he also sees a new kind of opportunity in the current moment. Before the late 1940s, union activists had to collect dues directly from workers, and that often involved visiting them at home, hearing their concerns, and talking about the issues of the day. But since automatic dues payments became a reality, unions have had much less access to workers outside of the workplace, and particularly at home. But ubiquitous social media is changing that. And the need to move everything online in the current moment, though it is for terrible reasons, provides an opportunity to change it further. Blackadder has no magic answers about what exactly unions should be doing, but he speculates that custom-made smartphone apps may be one promising approach. Ultimately, he says, while it is important to understand the pros and cons of different online tools, and what each can and cannot be expected to accomplish, in many ways the main task of labor activists is not much different today than it was for their predecessors putting up posters in the 1850s or making use of the new phone network in the 1920s. Whatever tech you're using, the key is having an analysis of how power works in the workplace and in society, and figuring out what workers can be doing collectively to change that. I speak with Blackadder about unions, and about their long history of using online
1: tools. My name is Derek Blackadder, and I'm a retired QPE staffer. I'm a columnist with Our Times. I write the web work column for the magazine. And for about 20 years now, I've been a volunteer with Labor Start. I started going to union meetings back in the 1970s. I was a housekeeper at the Royal Victoria Hospital in Montreal. I became more active and a steward when I was apprenticing as a machinist at a factory in Montreal. After that, I was laid off when the company moved production in the early 80s to India. Out of interest more than ambition, I wound up as a mature student at Concordia University in Montreal, did a history degree there, and then moved to graduate school at the University of Toronto, where I was active in the union that represented the teaching assistants there. And went on staff with the union, which eventually merged with CUPE, uh, became a QP staff representative And then over 26 years, something like that, I filled a number of different positions with CUPE before moving to another union, the IFPT Local 160 in Toronto, and then I retired three years ago.
0: When do you first remember encountering digital communication technologies as part of trade union work?
1: It would have been sometime in the mid to late 80s. Of course, at that time anyway, when we're talking online, we wouldn't be speaking about the Internet. i had been trying to convince the union I was with at the time, fairly successfully, to use computers for a lot of administrative tasks. So tracking grievances, generating grievance histories that would allow us to look at problem areas, either issues or work sites that were causing problems of a recurring nature over time. And about that time, the gay and lesbian movement were starting to use dial-up bulletin board systems. You know, we're talking about the old squeaky modems that ran very slowly and weren't capable of transferring large files, but could, you know, send text messages back and forth or make them public on a bulletin board where everybody could read them. And they were using them to reach out to and organize and support mostly younger folks in isolated parts of the country who didn't have access to a larger LGBTQ community that they could integrate themselves with. And so they were using this new technology to basically attempt at least, and I think with some success, to create online communities for queer youth. They had a conference in, I think it was 1988 in Toronto, which they very generously allowed me to attend. And it was a real eye-opener. The new technology was at that point very, very new. It was highly unusual to come across somebody who even knew what a modem was, let alone owned one. But they were doing some pretty spectacular work. And it seemed to me that a lot of what they were doing is easily or usefully might be a better way of putting it transferred to the labor movement and used for basically the same purposes, you know, organized. From there, I was able to convince my union to set up a bulletin board system for YET so that locals or members even across the country could dial in and share information and message each other, that sort of thing. And you have to remember this is back when landlines were de rigueur. These are people very often who weren't earning enough money to be able to afford long distance call rates. And this was a cheap or even free since the union provided a 1-800 number for people to dial into, way for them all to communicate. And a lot of people, I think, did a lot of good work with folks that they never met by using the bulletin Board system. Work-wise, you were seeing a lot of consultation around grievances where local unions had similar language in their collective agreements. A lot of exchange of information, kind of an expansion of the locals' bargaining committee around the design of proposals, that sort of thing. There was the beginnings of some coordination in bargaining itself. But as important as all of that was, I think that a bigger impact could be seen back then in just building a sense of community. I know that sounds very sort of fuzzy, but people began to connect with other members of the union in ways that they couldn't before. So there was a sense that the union was something bigger than their local or the committee that they set on. And I think that over the longer term may have been more important than the more mechanical labor relations stuff around what might be happening at the bargaining or the grievance table.
0: After those early experiments with bulletin boards, what did unions do next?
1: Kupi had a guy in their communications department who had an interest in computers and he built a system in his spare time that was called Solidarity Network, abbreviated as Solinet, which be funded and which grew to basically be a large intranet for initially QP staff and then eventually QP staff and a considerable number of locals. And Solonet, in many ways, pointed the way for unions' use of the internet. It was kind of a bridge between the small, kludgy, occasionally not very reliable bulletin board systems and the internet Solonet was able to do a lot of what the bulletin board systems were doing, but it did it on a much larger scale. The technology improved. It allowed for much faster transmission of text and files, which made a significant difference to the way in which the Internet could be used. Near the end of its life, Solonet was becoming graphical. And in the process, it made using online communications tools much more user friendly for people who back then probably thought that they needed to have at least a year or two of computer science education under their belt before they could effectively use a computer over a telephone line. And then probably starting around 1993. Services like Bell Simpatico became available, which were still, for individual users, fairly pricey. But the technology you needed in order to use an account from Sympatico was becoming much cheaper. And as the accounts became cheaper and internet access began to spread outside of the university and government environments, then there was the potential there for unions to start using the new media to actually organize both their members and even initially in very narrow, specific kinds of workplaces. But as time went on, that broadened out a bit, organize new members. The process of it becoming common to use those tools accelerated really, really rapidly beginning probably about 1995 and into the early 2000s. When I go back and look through some of the writing on the subject that I did back then, even into, say, around 2005, I think a relatively small group of us, we were, I think it'd be fair to call us technological millenarians, so we thought that if we could just get everybody an internet account, train everybody up and send out an email or post something on a website that, you know, suddenly we would solve all of the labor movement's problems. Uh, that may be putting it a little strongly, but not much. We were pretty wacky, nerdy, geeky folks with a lot of enthusiasm and we weren't too terribly prone to self-criticism. But the movement needed us because in the wackiness of all the things we did, there was, you know, a small percentage, 10, 20 percent of what we did actually made sense and actually worked. Trade unions are organizations that are not overly burdened by resources, either human or financial or technological. And so sometimes it was difficult to get attention. But if you could demonstrate to the elected leadership of a union that something would actually work, And that in many cases, it would make their lives not easier, perhaps, but would make their work that they did more effective, even if it meant that they might wind up doing more work. And they were usually, in my experience anyway, pretty enthusiastic about adopting it. A lot of it didn't work, but the stuff that did work, did get some attention, was adopted. It did the job, at least for the short time that it was on the cutting edge. And then, of course, it wound up being replaced by something else that would come along.
0: So I guess we've reached the early 2000s when the internet was much more broadly a part of people's lives. From that point on, how have unions continued to refine and expand their use of online tools?
1: Even if I didn't self-identify as such, it would pretty clearly identify me as a geezer. But I think that that period, roughly from about 2000 to about 2006 or 2007, could be considered the golden age of trade unions and the new media. It was a time when artisanal, you know, built as opposed to bought and hosted websites for trade unions were common. There was a lot of creativity there. There was a lot of experimentation with unions doing things with websites that you couldn't do or would have difficulty doing today using, you know, the website in a box approach because the people building the site could build it to suit what the union's objectives were, what its membership was like, and what purposes it was going to be put to. I tend to date the decline of that golden era on the appearance and the spectacular increase in the popularity of Facebook starting around 2006, I guess, or 2007. To the point where now today, there are unions that, despite the dangers, and there are many, have completely walked away from owning their own website and have basically contracted out their online presence to Facebook or some other social media platforms. In the process, of course, they gain access to their members in the sense that pretty much everybody of a certain age anyway is on Facebook or one or two others of the uh, social media platforms. But at the same time, they're also limited in what they can do online by what Facebook allows them to do online. And of course, more dangerously, they're subject to Facebook's limits on what they can say and do on Facebook. And so in becoming even rhetorically militant on Facebook, they risk Facebook deciding that they have done something unpleasant and that therefore they're no longer welcome on Facebook, leaving them and their members, more importantly, up in the air and with no place to go.
0: How else has the world of social media shaped the practices of unions online? What other opportunities has it opened up, for instance?
1: It has been possible for a while, but in large part, unfortunately, because of the COVID-19 crisis, we're starting to see it happen more often. But it is possible for a union to be in a member's home or in a member's life in a way that we haven't been since the RAND formula.
0: Uh, And that's the name in Canadian labour law for the system of a closed shop and automatic dues payments that emerged in the late 1940s. So in
1: 1930, if I was a union staff person or a steward or a local president, depending on how cooperative my employer was, I would have to go to a member's home once a month or once a week, and I would physically have to collect dues from them. That was an organizing opportunity. It would give me a chance to talk to the member, to uh, let them know what was happening elsewhere, find out what they were doing, what their concerns were, all of that good stuff. What we won and what we lost with the institution of the RAND formula can be debated endlessly, but it did detract from that personal contact. So the union, after 47, became increasingly limited to contact with the members in the workplace, but subject then to oversight by the employer and at membership meetings. And the membership meetings' attendance was a problem in a lot of ways. There are barriers to people's participation, particularly for women. And with the calls on the union activists and officers' time without the requirement that they go and collect dues, they weren't going to wind up on a member's doorstep. And then probably by some time in the 70s, if you showed up on a member's doorstep asking to talk to them about something or other, they would ask you to go away. What email first in a kind of thin edge of the wedge manner did and what the social media platforms, especially Facebook, did was make it possible for a member to participate to some extent on their own terms in union activities. So it made it possible for a local union to organize people without having to drag them to a meeting. And then now, of course, we're seeing a further step forward. It'll be interesting to have this conversation a year from now and debate what's happened, whether we've dropped it or not. But it's now possible for the first time since, you know, nineteen forty seven in many of our unions, for a member sitting at home to interact with the union. So using Zoom or Skype or Jitsi or Facebook Live, much more on their terms than before. They can contact their union, they can interact with it, they can debate with their co-workers what needs to be done about this or about that. They can express their opinions about the performance and direction that the local union executive is providing. So it'll be interesting to see what comes of it. I'm a little concerned about the extent to which the organizing potential and what we're doing now as part of a response to a crisis will be forgotten once the crisis goes away. There'll be other calls on union activist time. It'll be difficult to find the time to sit down, look at what worked and what didn't work through this, and make sure that what worked continues to be done.
0: Another response, to how movements are restricted right now is an acceleration of the existing trend towards use of grassroots campaigns that are primarily online. What are the strengths and weaknesses, do you think, of online campaigning?
1: I think I have two answers to that. The strength is, of course, that you can reach more people. And you can reach people who, even if they were inclined to do it, might never be able to attend a union meeting or go to a meeting with a local union activist. And we could talk about email versus Nation Builder versus any of the other tools that are currently available or which will become available over the next few years, all of them adding to that ability to reach larger and larger numbers of people and also adding to what you can do or what you can send to those people. So in that sense, it has all been wonderful. We, of course, have concerns about, you know, privacy and should have concerns about privacy. We should have concerns about Facebook's willingness to shut down an inside organizing committees campaign in a particular workplace because, you know, the employer has had their lawyer send a letter to Facebook and Facebook on balance has no interest in supporting an organizing campaign, but doesn't particularly want to spend money defending itself from a lawsuit. So they make the easy decision and shut down a page or shut down a group. But the fact remains that we can reach much, much larger numbers of people, or we can reach the same number of people in the local union more often, more frequently using all of these tools. The con side is political. Let me back up a bit. Back in you know 1995, it was a novelty. So it was easy to think that you'd accomplished a great deal if you sent out an email to 150 people. That was something that you could do in two or three minutes, as opposed to printing out a letter, photocopying it, stuffing it in an envelope, stamping the envelope, taking it to the post office and waiting a week and a half to get back some replies. So people would think that they had accomplished a great deal by sending out those emails in the same way that people think that they've accomplished a great deal if they've got a Facebook group or a page that's got you know a couple of thousand followers or a couple of thousand likes. The difficulty is that really all you've got is a couple of thousand likes, a couple of thousand people have clicked a button, and that's not a deep commitment to whatever it is that you were talking to them about when they clicked on that like button. The problem still remains a political one. It's how to find a way consistently or new ways serially to migrate those members or workers who are clicking on the like button to taking real action. For almost 20 years now, Labor Start has been running our act now service for trade unions. So I wouldn't be involved with Labor Start if I thought it was true that there's no value in that. There is. But the value is a very specific one. It works in certain circumstances and is completely useless in others. It's an admission, basically, that in support of, you know, security guards striking in Indonesia, it's better to have a couple of thousand emails from Canadians than to have no solidarity coming from Canada for those striking workers in Indonesia. But in a local union context, an email is not always, but in the vast majority of cases, not worth rap What an email is worth is exactly how many people it gets out to take an action or to do something material out in MeatSpace. space. So, you know, if you've got 2000 likes on your local unions, Facebook page, great. But if you ask people to do something, you know, to take the obvious, if maybe extreme example, you ask people to go on strike to walk off the job and to go to a particular place and be there at a particular time. And those 2,000 people who liked your Facebook page show up, then great, but that's not going to happen very often. Negotiating that political bridge between cyberspace, slacktivism is the term that I think is still fairly popular. And a space action is the key to making effective use of social media or any online tool And that's the tough one. That's the one where the local leaderships and activists' assessment, political analysis of their membership, of the employer, of the issue, and all of those things has to come into play. And that analysis is pretty much the same analysis that our predecessors in 1850 were using. It hasn't changed much. The only difference is instead of putting up a poster on a pole in you know, 1850 or in 1927, making use of that novel new technology, the telephone and setting up the phone tree. But otherwise, it's the same. It makes some things easier. But it's also, in my experience, sometimes convinced people that they've accomplished something just by you know, putting up that poster or making that phone call or sending out that email or posting something on Facebook when what they're missing is what's necessary to get the members to take themselves and that information and do something, do something real with it.
0: As someone who's been wrestling with these questions for a long time, what advice would you give to labor activists right now in terms of what you see as
1: fruitful ways to be experimenting with technology? In talking about it, it kind of makes sense to separate the technological from the political. But the reality is that they're connected and that the political is far more important than the technological. Even though there's nothing wildly new about it, we could talk about video conferencing. It's how it's used and the content that matters. So, you know, a technologically really advanced, spent a fortune on a massive amount of technology union is not going to go anywhere, is not going to be more effective in organizing its members if there is no content to what it's communicating about. It's not going to be any more effective than it was six months ago if the members don't feel like they have any real control over say in or commitment from their local union. I have a long history of being wrong about this stuff, but I would be interested to see whether there's a resurgence in interest on the part of unions in phone apps. There were a few unions that developed apps probably starting about six years ago, seven years ago. They seem to have fallen out of favor. There wasn't a huge amount of take-up. But now, during the crisis, I'd be interested to see if there are any unions developing real-time, continuous communication strategies that are dependent on smartphone apps and how effective those turn out to be. I'm hearing all kinds of stories from half a dozen different unions and some labor councils about how their numbers attending their meetings have skyrocketed since they shifted over to Zoom or to Skype or Jitsi. And just logically, intuitively, it seems to me that a phone app may be a step further beyond video conferencing and it potentially if it was established as the norm or regular means of communicating between members and unions and vice versa, then you know there might be something interesting there over the next little while.
0: You have been listening to my interview with Derek Blackadder, a retired trade unionist, a volunteer with Labour Start, and the webwork columnist with Our Times Magazine. You can find Labour Start at laborstart.org, Our Times at ourtimes.ca, and Blackadder at dblackadder on Twitter. To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link for the radio show.